If you would, um, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses um, 35 through 37. It's page 848 in the Bibles there in your chairs. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Now, most of you know we've been going through our preaching lab. We just started it. Actually, we this over this past two days, Friday night and Saturday, we had ten guys rally together to learn the art and skill of preaching Christ-centered sermons. Uh, and it's been great. It, it was a blessing to see these guys just have to struggle and sweat, but yet, but but do a fantastic job. Every one of them did great. Our first-year guys, they get to preach a passage from the New Testament, but our second-year guys are forced to preach from the Old Testament, right? A little bit tougher, but it, it, it's been really good. I mean, everybody did. It just they, they far exceed my expectations, and, and it's such a blessing to see that and be a part of that. And I want to encourage you guys, the next time around, we'll let you know so that if you want to come to any part of it and listen to these guys and just encourage them and edify them, build them up, um, we'll let you do that. We, the first one, we kind of kept it hushed. You know, because of nerves and stuff. But, but we'll open it up from, from there on out. Um, so I'm, I'm imagining these guys, you know, we do these peer evaluations during which, so I'm guessing that they're probably very particular and looking for some certain things out of me this morning. So I've got to make sure I'm on my A game, you know. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Um, the first year guys, they're working through a book called Christ-Centered Preaching by Brian Chappell. And the guys from our second year are doing Graham Goldsworthy's preaching the whole Bible as Christian scripture. Now, did you hear a similarity between the two of those at all? Right? Our focus is on Christ-centered preaching. And so whether they're first year, second year, whether they're preaching from the New Testament or the Old Testament, they're to take whatever passage that they have and they are to preach Christ from that passage. Because Christ is the center. Now, if you're a Christian, you probably have been rightly told that the Bible is one unified story of God's plan within history to redeem his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? The Bible is not this anthology of, of somewhat related different books about the God of the Jews and then later Christian writings kind of brought together but really disconnected and not fitting in any way. That is not what the Bible is. The Bible is one story about God's work to redeem his people through his son, Jesus. That is what the Bible is about. That is, that is the center. That is the, the main point. God is, though it is diverse, the Bible is about God and his work of salvation through Jesus. But so often we hear that. We're told that. We're told that rightly. But then we come to the Bible, we try to read through it, and we just don't see it. Am I right? Have you ever been there? You ever gone to a book like Leviticus or Esther or Proverbs and tried to see Jesus there? And I can see a lot of law. I can see grand stories. I can see these pithy wisdom statements, but I don't see Jesus. And so we begin to think to ourselves, maybe I'm missing something, or maybe I've been lied to. Maybe this really isn't about Jesus. Right? And so we'll try, we'll, we'll, we'll attempt to struggle with it, right? We'll, we'll, uh, we'll try to like, find Jesus under every rock, you know, through like Bible code, or through the deeper spiritual meaning, or allegory, right? You know? And we'll do those types of things, or... Or what happens to most of us, if we're honest, we just give up. Well, I, I kind of know that that's right, but I just don't see it. I just don't understand it. I just don't get this. And so we quit out of discouragement. Or we take it to mean whatever we want it to mean. Right? It was a problem for the people in Jesus' days, the religious leaders that he was in, in, in conflict with. It was even for his disciples, and it's a problem for you and me. And what I don't want us to do is to hear that, that the Bible is all about Jesus, and not be able to see it and be struggle, like just struggle and be discouraged and walk away from it frustrated and just assume that that's right but not be able to see it for ourselves. And that's the one thing about this preaching lab. Whether these guys ever set foot behind a podium or not, I want them to be able to see 
where they are in relation to Christ in whatever text they preach from. Not that they're trying to read Christ into the text, but seeing where they are in, in the history of, of re- God's revelation to his people, and they can be able to then appropriately point it and direct it to its true and ultimate fulfillment, which is Jesus Christ, because he is the center. And I don't want us to just assume on it. I want us to see it. I want you to be able to see it. I want these guys to be able to see it and be able to communicate it to others. And the reason why I do, the reason why Jim does, why Caleb does, why Redeemer Church does is because Jesus does. You know, time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry, he says that the Old Testament points to him, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says it repeatedly throughout his ministry. The New Testament, time and time again, says both Testaments, the Old and the New, it is one story about Jesus. And in our passage this morning, Jesus takes a common Old Testament passage, a passage that everyone thought they knew, that everyone thought they understood, that everyone even hoped in and were waiting for, and he completely blows it up totally transforms it, utterly magnifies it. And if I could put it in my own words, what this passage is about, Jesus is the authoritative Christ declared by the Holy Spirit through King David to be Lord over all so that we might hear him gladly. Right? This morning, I am just going to unpack that statement. I'm going to be working it out, right? It was too complex to break it down, so that's my meaning, all right? No one should miss the main point of my sermon, okay? I'm giving it to you right here, right? Jesus is the authoritative Christ declared by the Holy Spirit through King David to be Lord over all so that we might hear him gladly. Because Scripture testifies that Jesus is not only the Son of David, but that He is the Son of God, so that we might hear and rejoice in Him. And so let's look at Mark 12, 35-37. Again, it's page 849 in the Bibles there in the chairs. It says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself And the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now I know that this is only three verses, but there is a ton in here. Okay, So let's get moving. The first truth that we see from this passage is that Jesus is the authoritative Christ. Now, I just have to tell you, as a pastor, speaking to you, I want you to hear this. God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. He does it in ways that we don't expect, ways that we can't comprehend, ways that at times we don't see what he's doing or why he's doing it, but he's always doing it. He will never fail to fulfill his promises. And if you read through the Old Testament, you see that God makes promises and he fulfills them in ways that the people of that day, they can't even possibly imagine. Right? God makes a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. But no one would have imagined, Abraham did not imagine that that would come through slavery in Egypt until God told him. No one could have imagined, no one could have guessed that God's promises to Moses would include 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the establishment and then dismantlement of a monarchy, the giving, the gaining of the promised land, but then it's loss. No one could have imagined or guessed that God's promises to David would include the giving of the throne, but also taking it away and sending the people into exile and coming back broken waiting for the reestablishment of a monarchy that never happens. No one would have guessed that. And no one would have believed that all of God's promises would be fulfilled in the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus in a barn in the middle of nowhere to a no-name family. No one would have got that. 
But God did it. That's just what God does. He keeps his promises in ways that no one would expect. This is why the people have had such a hard time with Jesus, right? Because they know the word. They've seen these promises, but they think it's got to go this way. This is how it has to be fulfilled in the way that I expect. But that's not the way that God intended Jesus appears out of nowhere. For three years, he goes throughout Galilee, he goes throughout Judea and Samaria, and even into Gentile lands, and he's preaching and teaching with authority, authority that just blows the minds of everyone, including the religious leaders of the day. He performs miracles and signs and wonders that no one has ever seen or heard of before, and they're just, they're boggled by it. They can't imagine it. They've got no categories for it. And he has no credentials. He has no degrees. He has no recognition by an established authority. And yet he proves himself to be powerful, to be an authority to be reckoned with. He has silenced his adversaries. We saw just a few weeks ago that He has so demolished every argument and every pretense that they would have against him that they no longer even dared to ask him any more questions. They were done. They had nothing left. But Jesus is the authority. And the reality is no one gets him, right? Not even his disciples. This passage picks up in verse 35 with Jesus still teaching in the temple, okay? Jesus has been there since chapter 11, verse 27, teaching in the temple. Now, I've got to ask you, what business does Jesus have teaching in the temple? Think about it. We look at it like, oh, this is the Son of God. Of course he has business teaching in the temple. But in that day and age, when you're looking, you're thinking about being in that culture, Jesus has no business being in the temple. Who teaches in the temple? Well, the scribes, the priests, and the elders, they're the ones that are responsible. It's the Sanhedrin. They have have the responsibility and authority in the temple. That locus of authority, that place of worship where God is meant to meet man, that is for those who have established credentials and authority, not for some homeless former carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus has no business, according to cultural standards, to be there, but yet he's there. It's like the the closest image that we can think of today would be like a homeless guy going into St. Peter's Cathedral in the Vatican City, utterly silencing the Pope and cardinals and bishops and all of those people, and then continuing to preach right there. That's the closest illustration I can think of. Jesus has no business to be there, except for the fact that his power, his wisdom, and authority are undeniable to all completely undeniable. He has proven himself for three years and they can do nothing about it. His power is actually even greater than the temple itself. And after silencing these religious leaders with all of their questions, with all of their demands, it's now his turn to turn the tables and to ask them some questions. Now I know in the ESV, which is what we have there, the, uh, most of you have, that's what's there in the, in the chairs, it says, and Jesus taught in the temple He said, right, and that's there in verse 35, but it leaves out a word, and I think it's an important word. Some people might see it as redundant, but I think it's important for us to understand who he's speaking to. It's the word teaching. Okay, it says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, or I'm sorry, answering, my bad, the word is answering, and as Jesus taught in the temple, answering, he said, okay, we have to ask the question, who is he answering? Who's asking him the questions? Right? You've, got to, you've got to determine that. We know from verse 37 that there was a great crowd there. Right? That's, and, and we can assume as a given that the disciples are there. We saw them enter into the temple with him. We haven't seen them leave. We can assume from context that they're there. But is that really all that he's answering? Well, no. I think he's answering the very religious leaders and authorities who were questioning him. Right? He, this is his answer to them. And in fact... Matthew, in Matthew 22, supports that idea. It says that Jesus questioned the Pharisees and asked that very question, okay? So he turns the tables back on them. He wants to ask them the question. But his answer also extends to us, 
This is not just for the people of that day. It is for us. And the question is this, whose son is he? We all have to answer that question. Whose son is Jesus? And so Jesus replies, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, Jesus is not denying that the Christ is David's son. The issue is the fact that they're teaching that the Christ is only David's son. He's not denying the fact that the Christ is the son of David. He's just saying the problem is the Christ is a whole lot more than that. And he wants them to see it. Now, Jesus has already received both titles. In chapter 8, verse 29, you have Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ. Right? Do you remember that? And Jesus then turns and verifies that. He doesn't deny it, but instead he verifies it in ways that Peter can't even imagine in the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember that story? There's Peter. He's up on the mountain. He is freaking out. He's terrified. He can barely look up as Jesus is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And he hears this voice thunder down from the heavens Behold, my beloved son, listen to him. That is the verification of Jesus being the Christ. And just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 10, you've got the blind man Bartimaeus who can see things that no one else could see. And he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus didn't deny that either. Instead, he verified it by restoring Bartimaeus' sight. And there in chapter 11, Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. You remember the crowd is singing and dancing and shouting and laying down palm branches. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus doesn't deny that. But instead he verifies it by cursing the temple. Never once did Jesus deny the titles of Christ and Son of David for himself. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus says to his disciples, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Well, who is the Christ? Just read two verses earlier in chapter 9, verse 39. He makes it clear that he is referring to himself. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of David. Again, the issue is their understanding of who the Christ was and what he would do. That is incomplete, and he's there to clarify it for them. Now, I've just talked about the Christ and the Son of David, and you might be asking yourself, so what? I don't even know what that means. Okay? Well, to answer that question, what is the Christ? What is the Son of David? You have to start in Jesus' time and back up 1,000 years. Okay, to the time of King David. And you can see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, God made a promise to David. And it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What does forever mean? Forever means forever. It doesn't mean for a season. It doesn't mean for a time. Forever means forever. Okay? Now, we know that this was partially fulfilled in the coming of Solomon. God promised to establish a dynasty for David that would last forever. This kingdom would be everlasting. You see Solomon come in. Solomon builds the temple. But what happens next? Keep reading through history. What happens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam? He's a sinner. He screws up. And what happens? The kingdom is divided. So just two generations after God makes this promise to David, David's kingdom is now divided in two. 
But then keep going through history, and what you see is that that northern kingdom actually falls to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. All right? Not that long. 250 years or so after David, half, most of his kingdom is gone. And then the southern kingdom, the one that's left, it falls in 586 B.C. So I'm not doing my math here, so I might be really off, but you know, about 400 or so years later, right, at that point, David's kingdom was completely gone. Gone. In 539 B.C., the, the Medes actually beat out the Babylonians, and now the, the, the Jews, they can return to the land, and they crawl back into Jerusalem, but the kingdom is never reestablished. Even... Moving ahead from David to Jesus, that thousand-year period, people are waiting and there's no king. That kingdom is not forever. Is God a liar? He just tell David a lie? Did he really mean forever? Yet God's promises to David continued. Right? Even after David's kingdom was divided, David's long dead at this point. You've got Isaiah in Isaiah 9 and 11, along with Amos and Hosea, who are, who are contemporaries of Isaiah. They all prophesy that David's throne would be established forever and that a shoot from the stump of Jesse would arise. Now, Jesse is David's dad, okay? So he's basically saying a shoot out of David will arise, okay? Jeremiah proclaimed even later. This is after the northern kingdom has fallen and the southern kingdom is about to fall. In Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 30 and Jeremiah 33, you've got Jeremiah prophesying that, David, that God would raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Then during the exile, the people of Israel were captives in Babylon. You've got Ezekiel prophesying in in Ezekiel 34 and 37, that God would restore his servant David, who at this point was long dead. He would restore David to be a king and to shepherd over his people on God's behalf. And then even after that, after the exile, when people are creeping back into the land, you have Zechariah prophesying once again that a branch of David would come. Fast forward 600 or so years, or four, whatever it is, my math is bad. Somewhere between four and 600 years, give you approximation. <laughs> to the time of Jesus, and all of that is yet to be fulfilled. All of that hasn't happened yet. And you're left with the question, is David a liar? Or I mean, is God a liar? The Israelites waited for the fulfillment of these promises. They knew that God's word would prove true. And so they were looking for a Christ. They were looking for a deliverer who would, who would free them from their oppression. They were looking for a king from the line of David to shepherd them. They were looking for a political warrior, for a wise judge, for a righteous branch to reestablish their nation. That was the Christ that they were looking for. That was the Christ that it was promised. But they could not see that in Jesus. They had no categories for it. God was fulfilling his promise to David from 2 Samuel and Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah in ways that they could not possibly expect. God was and is accomplishing his purposes over that thousand-year period of history in a Christ that they did not get. <clears throat> Christ is so much more than a human deliverer. The son of David is so much more than simply an earthly king. And all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. Now I've got to ask you the question, do you now understand why we are, are teaching Christ-centered preaching? All right? This is just a snippet, folks. This is not all of it. It all points to him. But here's why it's important. You're thinking to yourself, okay, yeah, I get that, whatever. I'm not going to preach, so whatever. How does this apply to me? Well, since the beginning of creation, God has made promises to mankind. 
God has worked within history to reveal himself to all mankind. He's been doing this work. His purposes in creation, his intentions behind everything, God has been active. He has been working. He has been moving. And we have seen throughout the course of history that he has promises that have been fulfilled. There are promises that he is currently fulfilling, and there are promises that he is still yet to fulfill. But one thing we know for sure is that God has proven himself to be faithful to keep his promises. He has done it over and over and over again. God is faithful, and he does it in and through Jesus Christ. And you are a part of mankind. You are living within history. So those promises are promises to you. They will be fulfilled in Jesus one way or or another, either to redeem or to judge. But if you are His, His promises are yours. You need to hold on to these. You need to love these. We need to see these and rejoice in the fact that God is is keeping His promises that He has revealed through history, through His Son, Jesus Christ, that ought to blow our minds. God's purposes in creation find their fulfillment in Jesus, the authoritative Christ. And so trust in Him. Even when you can't see Him working, trust in Him. Even when you have no idea what He is doing, trust in Him. God is faithful. He will surely do it. So, I guess this is my normal fashion, giving all the background right up front, making my first point really, really, really long. Okay, that's the first one. Jesus is the authoritative Christ. Other, four, other three are going to come much faster. Don't worry. Who second was declared by the Holy Spirit through King David. Okay? If one thing has been clear out of our study in Mark so far is that Jesus is the authority. You cannot read Mark and not just be wowed by Jesus' obvious authority. I mean, Jesus has the authority to teach. He has the authority to heal. He has the authority to cast out demons. He has the authority to forgive sin. He has authority over nature. He has the authority and ability to reverse death. He has authority over the Mosaic law. What does this guy not have authority over? His authority, his authority is greater than the religious leaders, greater than the temple itself. You don't curse the temple unless you are greater authority than the temple. Okay? You get that, right? And if you're not, you're proud and thinking you're an authority when you're not. But even though Jesus has proven himself time and time and time and time and time and time and time again to be the authority, do you see what he does in verse 36? He points to Scripture. He says, you want to know my authority? Look here. Look at this. He appeals to Scripture to prove his authority. Guys, that is amazing. Think about it. If you had the power to cause the dead to raise to life, do you think that you would refer to Scripture? Come on. Would you? <laughs> no. I mean, haven't you seen, like, what's that What's a movie that's coming out where the kids have the superpowers and they get all corrupt and stuff? Chronicle or something? I don't know. I don't even know what it's about. I'm just basing this off of a trailer that I saw one time. But you see these guys, like, you know, when you have superpowers, or just do any, just do any superhero movie or anything like that. When you have, when you have superpowers, you don't refer to a higher power, do you? You are the higher power, right? That's what we like about superhero movies, right? Because we can establish ourselves, like, in some foolish notion that we could be the powerful authority, right? Anyway, I'm getting off track. Sorry. I wasn't there. I'm deviating. <laughs> in verse 36, we see Jesus' confidence in the Word of God. I want you to catch this. This is huge. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Here is Jesus' view of the Word of God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is authoritative, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient for all mankind. And I'm not reading that into the text. You know, you have some theologians who say, well, inerrancy, man, that, that, no one believed that. Right? That was a later invention. Well, no, uh, let, let's flush it out, okay? 
Let's flesh it out. Kids, by the way, most, most of our kids aren't here, but our, <laughs> I was going to refer to our catechism, right? Our catechism, I, one of the questions is, what, uh, who wrote the Bible? God let holy men taught by the Holy Spirit write the Bible. Right? We teach our kids that. And that's what Jesus is agreeing with. Jesus, the Christ, the very Son of God, appeals to Scripture to show who He is and what He is doing. And He wouldn't do that if He didn't believe it. Do you guys get that? He would not refer to Scripture if He didn't believe it. If he knew that it was mistaken, do you think he'd be like, oh, yeah, let's look here? No, he wouldn't. This is Jesus who's performed miracles and signs and wonders. He's proven himself to be the authority. And unless he recognized that the authority of the revealed word of God is greater than that which you can see, he would not have referred to it. If he thought it was mistaken, if he thought it was untrue, if he didn't think that it was reliable, if he didn't think that it was sufficient, he would have never pointed them to it. He would say, look right here. Let me show you what I can do. Boom. There you go. But he doesn't. He points them to the Word of God. This time, he takes us to the first verse of Psalm 110. Now, we know in Mark, Mark doesn't focus that much on the teaching of Jesus, but rather the actions of Jesus. Remember that? I kind of described it as the action hero comic gospel, right, where it's just bang, pow, zap. He doesn't want to just tell us who Jesus is. He wants us to see who Jesus is. And so he talks a lot about the life events of Jesus and the things that he's doing. But when Mark actually talks about the teaching of Jesus and when he actually points to where Jesus refers to the Bible, you know that it's really, 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 really important. And you need to pay attention to it. Okay? <clears throat> he looks at Psalm 110. Now, this psalm was understood by the religious leaders and everybody of the day to be a messianic psalm. They all expected the Christ from this passage. They all knew. Like, if you read the whole thing, you would see that it all points to this greater king who would come, this deliverer. But Jesus just focuses on the very first verse. I should also say that this is the most quoted verse in all the New Testament. One commentator said that it's either quoted or alluded to 33 times in the New Testament, all of which are pointing to Jesus. Jesus focuses on the first verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, originally, during the reign of David, the people probably understood this as saying, God said to my king, meaning God said to David, right? It's probably the way they read and understood that. But as history unfolded and the Davidic line came to an end, you know, through the exile, and then afterwards, people still saw that God was keeping the promise to David. They saw that in all of these prophets who were, begin who were still speaking of this righteous branch of, of David, and so they're like, no, 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 it can't be David. It has to be David's Messiah. This Lord, it has to be the, my Lord, my God said to my Messiah. My God said to my Lord. So David is the one speaking here. And David is the one saying, God said to my Messiah. Right? They knew that God would keep his promises to David, so they must be fulfilled in this coming one, the Christ, whom God would establish at his right hand and make his enemies a footstool. These were the words of King David as he declared them in the Holy Spirit. David, inspired by the very breath of God, the Holy Spirit said, God said to my Messiah. Don't miss that. This tells us that Jesus believed in the power and authority of the Word. Now I have to ask you, what about you? What do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe, like Jesus, that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit? That it was God-breathed? Do you believe, like Jesus, that it is more authoritative than signs and wonders? Because Jesus didn't say, look at what I do. He says, look at the Word. If you want to know who I am, if you want to know why I came, if you want to know what it means to follow me, look here, Psalm 110. 
Do you believe like Jesus that it all points to him? Friends, Jesus believed in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must hold to the same thing. You cannot pick and choose. J.I. Packer says, Jesus, so far from rejecting this principle of biblical authority, actually accepted it and built on it, endorsing it with the greatest emphasis and full weight of his own authority. The authority to which he laid claim was absolute and unqualified. Read between the lines. What is he saying here? Jesus, who had absolute and unqualified authority, says, this has absolute and unqualified authority. That's what Packer's saying. And if Christ were mistaken here, can we have confidence in anything that he claimed? You see, here's the thing about it. The authority of Christ and the authority of Scripture stand or fall together. They are inseparable. If you say that you believe in Jesus, you say you believe He's the authority, you say that He is the Son of God, right? then you have to believe what the Bible says about Him. You cannot pick and choose. You cannot say, I like this passage, I don't like this one. I want to keep this one, I'm cutting this one out. Right? We are not allowed to do what Thomas Jefferson did with the Jesus Seminar. Right? We cannot do it. If you, would, if you believe who Jesus says and proves himself to be, you must also believe the word that he upholds. And if you don't believe the word, then Jesus is just a figment of your own authority. Not his and not the word's. When you're picking and choosing yes to this and no to this, yes to this and no to this, you're saying, I'm the authority. I'm willing to do this. I'm not willing to do that. That's what we're doing. That's not what Jesus says. Take it at its word. This is the word of God. So, Jesus is the authoritative Christ declared by the Holy Spirit through King David, third, to be Lord over all. So far, we have seen that Jesus has taught with authority. He has performed miracles and signs and wonders with all authority. He's left everyone, including the highest officials of his day, utterly speechless, utterly astonished by everything that he has done. We've seen that he has fulfilled the Old Testament promises of a son of David, the Christ who would reign as king forever. We've seen Jesus' high view of Scripture And rather than resting in his own obvious authority, he appeals to the inspiration and power of the word of God. But nothing, nothing would have prepared them for what he says next. In verses 36 and 37, he says, David said in the Holy, uh, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus says, this passage, which you religious leaders have taught your entire lives, points to something that is so much greater than just an earthly king. The Messiah is more than the son of David. This is not a Jewish king only. And he gives us some reasons why. First of all, David calls the Messiah Lord. This doesn't really seem like much to us until you begin to understand. Now, if the Messiah was simply a son of David, then according to the rules of patriarchal societies, which Israel's one of those, then David would not call his son Lord. You get that, right? It would be the other way around, that his son would call him Lord, not David calling his son Lord. Right? So the Messiah would be calling David Lord, not David calling the Messiah Lord, unless, unless the Messiah is someone greater than David. David was prophesying in the Holy Spirit of one of his sons to come who would be greater, who would fulfill all of God's promises from 2 Samuel 7. This simple 
observation of this well-known psalm. When Jesus did this, when he looks at this, that people have seen so many times and they knew and they understood. In this simple observation, he destroys the notion that the Christ is simply a descendant of David who would restore the nation of Israel. He blows that out of the water. Jesus has fantastic hermeneutic skills, folks. He really does. Just simple observation. It's amazing. God's promise of a Messiah is far more than an earthly king because the greatest king in all of Israel calls him Lord. But there's more. Not only did David call Christ Lord, but we also see God promised that the Christ would sit at his right hand. Okay, we make light of this. We don't really get what this is all about. You know, when we hear right hand, we kind of think of that, that cutesy little phrase, oh, he's my right hand man. Right? Like, yeah, he's my buddy. I trust this guy. He's loyal to me. I can, I can trust him with my stuff. He's my right hand man. Right? But that's not at all what the Bible is conveying here. You see, to sit at the right hand of God means that Christ the, the Christ would rule with the same authority as the very throne of God. All right? This promise of divine power and sovereignty and authority to rule and judge as the very hand of God. This is a promise of this messianic psalm promises that God would establish the Christ to the most exalted position in His kingdom. And we're not talking about some puny earthly kingdom. We're talking about the cosmos. We're talking about the universe. That this Christ would be exalted to the position where He has sovereign rule over the universe. That kind of power, that kind of ability. This is no puny earthly ruler of some small Middle Eastern tract of land. This Lord, this Christ, has divine power to rule. And God goes on to say, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And the Bible is clear that God is sovereign over all nations, over all kingdoms, over all powers, over all principalities. There is nothing outside of his control, nothing outside of his ability. God establishes empires and God dismantles them and tears them down. Proverbs 21.1 says that a king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. All of creation is under the sovereign authority of God. He owns it. He lays claim to it. He commands it and it does his bidding. That is the power of God. That is the authority and rule of God. But what we don't often recognize is that it has always been God's plan to redeem His people by placing His enemies under the feet of one ultimate ruler. A ruler who bears the image of God. A ruler who did what Adam could not. Remember Adam was given all dominion over creation, right? But he and Eve sinned against God. They were subject to decay. The world went into just chaos. And they're there and they're striving for authority, but they could never grasp it. But God's promise to them in Genesis 3.15 was that the seed of a woman would crush the seed of the serpent. This authority would be reestablished under the feet of the seed of the woman. Now, I wish that I had time to run out of biblical theology of this because it is fascinating. It really is. Okay? I know you're not as nerdy as me, or most of you are not as nerdy as me. So, for those who are, you can write this down. Okay? In the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology, about 2006, Jim Hamilton wrote an article called The Skull-Crushing Seed of a Woman, Inner Biblical Interpretation of Genesis 3.15. And he just runs this out. It is fascinating. I love it. Okay? And you can see this in more detail because I don't have time to go into it here. So let me know. I'll email it to you. I've got it in digital form. 
But what the Bible, both Old and New Testament, shows us is that God intended ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin to place his enemies under the one who is the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 and Romans 16 tell us that the seed of the woman would crush Satan under his feet. The books of Numbers, Judges, Isaiah, Habakkuk promised that all rulers and governments that stand opposed to God would be trampled under his feet. Genesis, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Peter, Jude, they all speak about the judgment of angels, of spiritual powers. Hosea, 1st Corinthians, and Hebrews speak of the defeat of death itself. And so basically all of Scripture is leading up to this culmination of the seed of the woman having victory over all things. Every enemy will be laid under his feet. Paul says it this way in in Philippians chapter 2 verses 11 or 5 through 11 have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though for though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father and if you run it all the way out to the other bookend to revelation chapter 5 what you see is that this lion of Judah who is seated on the very throne of heaven, this root of David would conquer as the lamb who was slain. The reality is this one, this seed of the woman who would come would gain victory through his death and resurrection and exaltation as Lord over all. He is not just the son of David. He is the son of God. Now, some people try to claim that Jesus never said this of himself. That Jesus never tried to make the claim that he was the son of God. You hear that from liberal theologians. If you've ever had a conversation with a Muslim, you've probably come into contact with that. They often say, well, Jesus himself never claimed to be the Son of God. Well, I think that this passage clearly speaks against that. But if you need a little bit more, Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, this is Jesus being tried before the Sanhedrin. Okay? It says there, in, in again, Mark 14, 61, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Blessed being God. Notice it's capitalized, right? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the, uh, with the clouds of heaven. Right? This passage, Jesus not only claims to be the fulfillment of Psalm 110, but actually of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is given divine power from the very ancient of days to rule in the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see it all coming together. This is amazing, guys. I don't know how you can be not excited about this, right? I'm, I'm giddy right now. I want to run. I do. I mean, it's just nuts. But this is how it goes. Now, I know that I've blasted you with a ton of Bible, but I don't apologize for it. I don't. I won't do it all the time, or at least this much, but I don't apologize. Because the truth is, I'm only beginning to scratch the surface. The Bible has so much to say about Jesus. He is no mere man. He is no mere teacher. Jesus didn't come to be a moral example to us. Jesus is Lord over all. 
God has spoken and acted throughout human history to clearly point to that fact. Jesus is the center. And how dare we say anything else? Now perhaps you're questioning, well, if Jesus is Lord, why is it more evident? I mean, I look around this world, I look at my own life, I'm going to be honest with you, it stinks. I see all kinds of problems. Are you going to sit there and tell me that Jesus is ruling right now? Well, I don't see it. So you tell me where it is. Well, Scripture has something to say to that as well. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Christ... God left nothing outside of his control. So what is outside of the control of Jesus? Nothing. Okay, keep reading. At present, okay, that means the writer of Hebrews day and now, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Oh, wait, he's answering our question. But we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You want to know why you don't see the reigning rule of Jesus right here and right now? Because if you saw it, it means a judgment comes. It is the grace of God in your life to allow you to experience pain and suffering and hardship so that you would look to the cross to see the ultimate fulfillment of pain and suffering and hardship. God allows you by His grace to see death to experience that for yourself and to fear it and to know that it is not natural and to know that there is something more out there so that you would turn and look to the one who fulfills it all, Jesus Christ. If he was here now, reigning in glory that is his right now, and we saw it, that means that judgments come. There is no longer a time to repent. There is no longer a, a time to turn away from yourself. But as He is gone, now is your chance. Now is your opportunity. Let the grief of your life point you to the fact that there is something more, and it is found in the Savior, Jesus Christ. It is God's grace. There will be no opportunity to repent of your sin and believe in Him as Lord if He is to return. Now is the opportunity. Now is your chance. Though nothing is outside of His control, we don't see it so that we have time to respond, not just to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but to the love of Him who, though He had it all, gave His life for sin. Has he ever questioned the lordship and the love of Christ? What more does he have to prove to you? What more does he need to show you for you to know and understand who he is and why he came and what it means to follow him? Jesus died on a cross as a sacrifice in our place. He bore the wrath of God for our sin so that we might have life, so that we might recognize who He is. He was raised from the dead to prove that everything that He said and everything that He did was true. Are you going to sit back and do nothing? Are you not going to respond? Or are you going to repent and trust in Jesus? He will forgive your sins and He will give you a whole new life. Jesus Christ is David's Lord. And I pray that by the grace of God, He will be yours as well. So, Jesus is the authoritative Christ who is declared by the Holy Spirit through King David to be Lord of all, forth, so that we might hear Him gladly. I can't walk away from this text. I can't leave this behind without looking at the crowd's response. 
In verse 37 it said, And the great throng heard him gladly. Now I'm sure that there were some people that heard him and were glad for all the wrong reasons. I'm sure that there were some people that were there and they heard him and they were glad because he said something new. Something that they hadn't heard before. I'm sure that there were some, who I probably would have been in this crowd, right, who were really glad because he had basically put it to the pompous religious leaders of the day, right? He's just shown them up and they're kind of tickled by all that. But I'm also sure that God's word never comes back void. And that there were some who were there who heard Jesus and received it gladly and trusted in him. The real question is, do you delight in Jesus' teaching? Do you delight in what is being said? Are you glad to hear him? Does it amaze and astound you how the whole Bible says all that it says about Jesus? Does it make you hungry for the word? If not, let me ask you, why not? Why is it not? What keeps you from rejoicing in the fact that God has spoken throughout history to make promises that he has fulfilled and will fulfill completely in his son, Jesus Christ? Perhaps it's because you are too preoccupied with your attempts to live as Lord over your own life. Friends, this is really the essence of sin. It's not that we break arbitrary rules, but sin is really us trying to be God, us trying to be in control of our lives, us trying to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it and without any acknowledgement, without any thought towards God. It's basically me living as if this is my world and I'm God. I've got to ask you, how's that working out for you? You find true joy and pleasure and fulfillment in it? Is your soul being satisfied? You know, you're trying to put yourself in a place that you're never meant to be. You're pretending to be God. And that's the thing about it. You're not going to be satisfied because God has created this world in such a way that the true authority and it's meant to be over all things is Jesus Christ. That throne is His. And you can play God all you want and try to sit like a big boy on that throne, but you can never, ever do it. It'll never work. It'll make life miserable for you and everyone around you. This is about recognizing that it rightfully belongs to Jesus, the one who is the only Lord, but the one who loves you and who loves you so much that he sacrificed his life to pay for sins like yours and mine. You can never separate that out. Jesus had nothing to prove to you. He didn't have to take on flesh. He didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to die, but he did it because he loves you and he wants you to follow him. It's about seeing Jesus as Lord and Savior and letting him have rightful place in your life. But one other observation about this text. Do you notice that Jesus never answers the question? Right? He asks a question. He connects all the dots for you so that you can see it, but he doesn't go right out and answer the question for you. He leaves you with, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The thing is, he wants you to answer the question. Who is he? Whose son is he? You answer. You need to answer. Are you going to confess that he is Lord, that he is the son of God? Will you hear and respond to him gladly? Jesus is the authoritative Christ. He is declared by the Holy Spirit through King David to be Lord of all so that you might rejoice, so that you might hope, so that you might receive him gladly. And I pray, guys, I pray that you would. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and how time and time again it points us to Jesus. God, I pray that, that your spirit would be at work through it to open our eyes in new and profound ways to, 
to just how no matter where we are in Scripture, in one way or another, it, it points, it discloses, it, it directs us to Him. God, I pray that we would just see how amazing and fantastic that is. I pray that we would stop trying to play like we're Lord. Seat ourselves on a throne that belongs to Him. We would get off it and acknowledge who He is. I pray for those, you know, I don't know where everybody is here today. But I pray that they would trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. That they would not wait to respond, that they would respond now, that they would respond quickly, that they would be convicted by your Spirit through your Word to be given a life, to have their hearts transformed by the truth and beauty of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.